Welcome to today's episode of the New Era Property Podcast, where we discuss all things property and share some ideas on what to do and what not to do. Today, our episode is called How to Lose Money in Property. So we'll be talking about some of the common pitfalls where people lose money and hopefully giving you guys some ideas about what to avoid. So fingers crossed you don't do the same. My name is Sam Lawson and with me today is Lorraine Gannon. So Lorraine, what do we have on the cards for today's episode? Well, thank you, Sam. Today we will be talking about a fantastic and of course free resource that you can use to buff up your knowledge on all things planning. Perfect for this time of year if you're into a bit of planning and also an updated forecast of what's going on in the property market for 2023. And we'll be diving into today's main topic, of course, of how to lose money in property, sharing some of the main ways which we've seen people lose money and hopefully you can do the opposite in property so you can avoid all those mistakes along the way. So it sounds like we've got plenty to talk about today Sam so let's start with today's news story. Thank you very much. So today's news story comes from um, Property Industry Eye, which is a great website if you're looking for property resources and property information uh, for keeping up to date with current news. Now, this headline is that UK house prices are predicted to drop by at least 10% in 2023. I've wanted to pick a story this week. The reason this caught my eye was really around the fact that we see so much doom and gloom in the media, and everyone says we're going to this massive recession. Some people say we're going to have a 50% drop in prices, 10%, 15%, depending on which report you look at. And actually, I wanted to dive into what seems to be a reasonably well-cited uh, report that we can then look at as being maybe a benchmark for a discussion. So here's what the article says. Residential property prices look set to fall by at least 10% next year as increasing interest rates and a year-long recession trigger a slump in household spending, economists have forecast. Now, this is according to Credit Suisse. The rising cost of mortgages will squeeze households in 2023 as payments rise to the highest level since 2009. Peter Foley, an economist at Credit Suisse, said we expect house prices to fall at least 10% next year in the US and the UK. He added that a global housing slump will adversely affect growth in developed economies, including the UK, in 2023. There could be turmoil for the housing market if UK interest rates rise towards 5.5% by spring, as the markets are currently pricing, with most economists expecting house prices to fall, at least in the short term. Credit Suisse expects borrowers in the UK to be hit harder by rising interest rates in the US because the overwhelming majority of US mortgages are fixed for 30 years. Most UK borrowers fix their interest rates for between two and five years. So I'll put a little pause in the article there and we'll discuss that for the moment. So Credit Suisse forecasting at least 10% drop in the housing prices next year. We're already maybe starting to see the beginning of that now potentially. And they are citing that we are a little bit more interest rate sensitive than the US because we don't fix our mortgages for as long. Okay, so what do you think about that, Lorraine? Particularly around the two-year, five-year. Let's start with that first of all. Are you fixing mortgages now for as long as you can, or are you quite happy to take variable rates, two-year rates? Here they point out that the UK is slightly more sensitive to interest rates because we tend to go for a two- or a five-year fix, whereas in the US, the norm is pretty much a 30-year fix. How do you kind of apply that to your business at the moment? Are you fixing long, or are you going short and variable? How are you approaching that? So we have kind of, I suppose it depends on the property and any kind of um, asset management of the property. So we wouldn't go too long on uh, our mortgage products if we are looking to uh, perhaps sell some land off or to um, perhaps do some kind of um, extension or some, you know, something that might mean we want to go and actually get uh, a refinance or we want to look at getting some of the equity of the uplift back out because um, you can end up with some fairly hefty 
early redemption charges if you go too long um, because they tend to be quite quite um, quite steep. So th that definitely influences our decision at the beginning. So where we're not in that kind of that scenario, we do tend to fix for five years. Um, five years has been fairly affordable money. Not seen much difference between um, between some of the two year and the five year fixes. Um, so five years has given us that certainty around cash flow. And um, we've had some very, very good rates. Now, some of those were done sort of pre-September this year where we saw sort of um, the tightening of, of money and, and uh, those five-year fixes are, were going up quite substantially as were the two years. And, and what I've noticed is that two-year money tends to be, I think because it's more short-term, tends to be more expensive at the moment where the five-year rates um, seem to be, if you can fix in for that rate, I've been looking at those as, as some of the, a good guy to get good affordability on the properties. Um, having been in the 2007-2008 crash, um, we fixed on a property for 10 years. And it was when there was a lot of talk in the media about going up to dizzy heights of 10%, 12% interest rates. And uh, I think we fixed at 7% for 10 years. Now, that was extremely painful when interest rates dropped. Um, and what I've... I think you can only base your your base your sort of your future decisions on experience, and experience has taught, I suppose, myself and Rick that actually, if we if you are on an expensive long term fix, you can't see that that you know into that future so far, and and it does create that that problem of having quite an expensive rate. So I think if you can fix for a long time and you can fix at a, a an extremely cheap rate, then um, then that's always a good decision. But I think that boat sailed sort of over the summer. So I think the time to have fixed for 10 years was probably over the summer. Um, but now I, th I think, you know, you, you're going to challenge, be challenged with that kind of decision going forward. So that that's kind of um, my experience. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. It's really interesting because we talk about expensive money at the moment versus cheap money from the summer and before. Historically, we're still technically kind of cheap money, though, yeah. borrowing at around 5.5%. And I think people kind of need to have a little bit of perspective on that. Yes, is it far more expensive than it was 12 months ago? Absolutely. But if you compare it over 30, 40, 50-year averages, it's still historically pretty cheap. And as long as you're able to invest that in the right way, I don't necessarily see a massive issue here for sophisticated investors that are paying attention to the market and that know what they're doing. It may be a little bit harder for those that are more armchair investors or maybe not as actively involved in how they follow the market along. Um, let me yeah. continue this story. I've got another follow-up question for you on this as well, if that's okay. Mm. So the interesting fact that jumped out to me from this was that mortgage interest payments as a share of disposable income are expected to rise from 73 to 9.6% which would be the highest since the financial crisis. In the bank's annual outlook, Foley said the UK is more interest rate sensitive than the US and households already squeezed by energy costs face a larger economic downturn. Credit Suisse also believes the UK is already in a recession. It expects the economy to contract by 1.3% in 2023 and only grow by half a percent in 2024. Around 2 million British borrowers have to remortgage between now and the end of 2023, representing a quarter of all outstanding mortgages. 
Credit Suisse said that this will affect spending through a negative wealth effect as people generally feel poorer. So I suppose my question really here, and this is pretty much where we'll wrap the news story after this uh, this section. The rest of it's on the, on the website, so please do go check out um, Property Industry Eye if you want to see the rest of it. But really my question around this is that for the investor that either has property or maybe they've just got the first one or two properties, they're looking at what's happened to interest rates, they're due to remortgage next year, one in four mortgages are due next year to remortgage. What can they be doing actively? What's one or two steps they could be taking to mitigate some of the effects of what we're seeing here? Well, I think there's a, there's a couple of things. I think um, when you were talking about that, it just made me think back to actually um, leverage is still a a good way to get a good return on on investment. So what we know is that when um, when we use banks' money, mortgage mortgage money, when we use investor money, when we leverage up our own capital, our own capital attracts more return, particularly on higher yield properties. So, um, and, and that's just the way the numbers work, because if you can get a 10, 15% yield on something, then if you're only putting 25% in and you get that money at four, five, 6%, then your money is going to attract a much higher percentage of um, return because of that. So I think the the principle of using mortgages and interest in investing it is still a sound one. I think we have to be careful about how far up we go in the leveraging because if the loan to values do come down, um, if you're sorry, if the interest rates do go up, then you're then you're going to get effectively have a lower loan to value because your house is going to be worth um, perhaps more if, if we do see a 10, 20 percent drop in the market. So you do need to sort of work out potentially what product you'll end up on. So some of the practical things to do are to document exactly what um, what increases you have done to the property, almost create like a valuation pack so that when you are coming off your mortgage product, it might be a good time to go and get a another revaluation or a request that even if property prices have double um, have in dropped, then you might find that your property is still um, worth more than the book value because what often happens is mortgage companies will look at um, the the percentage increase in your area. They will add that to you, perhaps your purchase price. But for instance, say you've converted the um, the garage into another bedroom. Um, we know that's not the number one sort of way of adding value to properties. So you can typically add to a £250,000 house, maybe forty or £50,000 worth of value um, if, if you've converted the garage. So if you've done that, then you potentially could go on to, you could get a higher valuation um, but actually drop your lending in terms of the loan to value percentage, which will then potentially get you onto cheaper products. So th there's there's things to do to manage it. Watch the market as well. Speak to your broker um, and don't be afraid to to move and swap about. But don't bury your head in the sand because these things take a lot of time. Um, and we're finding that particularly working with finance houses like mortgage lenders, um, is taking a considerable amount of time at the moment. They seem to be the only industry that hasn't caught up post-COVID. Um, so I would suggest that you know you need to be well ahead of the curve on this because it can take um, a couple of months just to get commentary or underwriting on your mortgage valuation. So there's lots of things you can yeah, do. Fantastic. Yeah. The um, I think the big takeaway there for me was the um, don't bury your head in the sand. 
particularly because so many people I think they do they look at the cost and they go it'll be okay this month it'll be okay this month and eventually they hit a month where it's no longer okay so absolutely thank you very much Lorraine so we're going to wrap up on our news story there and then we're going to dive into our section on how to lose money in property and hopefully by looking at some of the ways in which people lose money we can learn how not to as well all right so today's hot topic is how to not lose money in property. And we're going to be looking at some of the key ways in which people generally lose money in property investing. Now, I have to say that very carefully because I'm tempted to say how to not lose money in property. But of course, we're trying to focus on how where people make the mistakes so that we can look at the opposite. So we're going to be looking at some of the key ways in which generally we've found in our experience um, that we know other people have lost money in property investing. So Sam, what is your number one tip here? Okay, so if I'm going first, I probably have to put at the top of the list probably underestimating refurbishment costs. That's gonna end up being right at the top of my list. Now, the reason for this is that I see so many people get this wrong and subsequently get themselves into trouble. And if it interrupts your cash flow, then it's very hard to finish jobs. So most of the time it's down to not being willing to do the legwork at the front end of buying a property, maybe before completing even, maybe before offering even, to get really meaningful quotes. Because it takes a lot of work to do this properly. And often investors, what they do is they'll walk around a property and they'll have a little look around, they'll put a finger in the air and go, 60 grand. And they pick this number out of the air because it looks a bit worse than a property where they spent 50 grand and a bit better than a property where they spent 70 grand, let's say. And it really can be as simple as a estimate from putting a finger in the air. And when I say that out loud now, there'll be people listening to this going, oh, I don't do that, I don't do that. But actually, when we're really honest with ourselves, we see this behavior innate in us that we make snap judgments without doing research because we feel experienced or entitled or confident from a previous job. Now, it rarely takes into consideration the finished specification that you're aiming for and how quickly the work is required to be done. So if you need that job doing in two or three months in order to exit whatever finance you might be on, you might pay a little bit more for that than if you're happy to wait over the course of four, five, six months, but you've got a bit of a like a longer time horizon. So my best advice on this would simply don't be afraid to put the work in. If you feel like you're doing loads and loads of research and getting your costs together, chances are you're probably along the right track. It takes a lot of work to get meaningful quotes. Try to have a clear idea of costs of going over schedule. So if you're going to go over schedule, work out what it's going to cost you, I would say per day or per week, in terms of bridging finance, council tax, utilities, loss of rental income, opportunity costs, etc. Try and have a figure for that, for what it costs you to go over your time horizon. And that can kind of keep you a little bit honest on making sure that you stick to a specific schedule and also you're really honest with your costs. Yeah, that's a great advice there, Sam. I mean, it's one of the things where we can always spend more money on a property refurbishment, right? So we have to make some tough choices to stay on budget and to get those returns in so that you have a property that is profitable at the end. So great one there. Okay, I'm going to start with buying properties with too low a yield. Now, what I've noticed is that people tend to just want to get on the buy-to-let ladder. They want to get an investment property. They want to cut their teeth sort of strategy and find something that just gets them started. This can often, what I think is, create a huge obstacle to their future investing. So one of the things that we do in our portfolio and also when we train our mentees in our training company, you'll see we have a huge, huge bias towards high cash flow strategies. And the reason for that is because it's entirely possible to purchase a property at a very reasonable price, refurbish it 
and let rent it out. So let's say that's a hundred a thousand pounds per month and then you refinance it but actually you're disappointed by the actual net cash flow you receive each month because obviously your refinance costs and your interest are higher and there tends to be sort of three main things that uh, affect this so it generally yield is all about if we think about the yield calculation yield is about your um, your annual rent divided by your property value times by 100 to get the percentage. So that's the amount of rent that you can charge. And essentially the um, the amount of debt and the interest rate effectively your property value at the bottom. So when you're talking about monthly costs, those two things come into our profit and loss. So um, that's where we find that people haven't really done the sums. Um, they've, they may have been restricted by the amount of, uh, of evaluation they can get because of the rental cover as well, particularly on single lets, not so much on high cash flow. Um, strategy. So what we find is that people, um, there's lots of viable high cash flow and property strategies out there that perform very well, but with interest rates being where they are today. So my big tip would really be to make sure that you focus on those high cash flow strategies and deals because they're the ones that are going to pay you substantial amounts each month. Single lets, you know, you can get some decent returns in high yield properties, but some of the low yield properties with high property values you're going to struggle to get any of your money back out um, to then go on and buy your second property you're going to be a bit locked in um, and you're not going to make much cash flow because it's just too too much interest for that property to carry that makes sense yeah i yeah that makes perfect sense Lorraine. Joe, i love this because actually this is something i see all the time where people go i'm just going to buy this buy to let and then you start to look at the numbers and you look at it and it, it might be fine but maybe fine is the best we can say about it, is that it gives them a little bit of cash flow and the return on investment is okay and it's fine. And you explain this to people and they go, but it's my first one. I'll start with something really, really vanilla and really safe. And you go, that's fantastic. But there are vanilla and safe opportunities out there or safer opportunities that still have really, really generous cash flow. And I see this so many times. So I really, really like that one. Thanks very much. Um, okay, so for my next one, you've really got me thinking of this now. I'm going to go with... and. There might be one or two people listening that I've spoken to that might think this is related maybe to them. So hopefully there's people out there that get some value from this. But it's people that enter and exit the market too often. I almost feel a little bit like we're on uh, Room 101 right now, where we've got people that enter and exit the market too often. I get to pull the lever and put them in Room 101. Now, it's not to say that you can't or shouldn't sell property. And I don't really have anything against selling. There's plenty of people out there that make really, really profitable businesses and livings out of doing so. But you have to know the costs that are attached to it. By the time you've done solicitor's fees, capital gains, agent's fees, potential finance costs, like early redemption penalties if you're subject to them, there's a real amount of money involved in selling a property. And if you're only selling the property to then use those funds to reinvest into a different property, you've got a whole other round of costs. You've got solicitor's fees, lender's solicitor's fees, broker's fees, valuation fees, professional consultations, so surveys if you need structural engineers, etc. Stamp duty, that's a big one. Lender application and arrangement fees as well. So you can start to see when you have costs on the way out and costs on the way in, this can really, really erode your profit. And that doesn't even weigh into consideration the lost time and the lost rental income. So it's quite easy to sell a deal for a decent profit. On paper, look really happy, get all the bragging rights, go on Instagram and do a couple of posts about how fantastic you made 45,000 pounds by selling this property you only had for six months. Wonderful. But then when you really, really get honest about your costs attached to selling and your costs attached to then reinvesting that money, you realize what looks like 45,000 pounds 
could easily only be 10, 12,000 pounds. Sometimes it can take all the profit away. So it's really, really important to be aware of this. And obviously when we sell a property, and I say this from somebody who's very portfolio-minded. We're about building long-term portfolios. But when you sell a property, you also miss out on the potential capital growth in the future. So it's worth having that in mind. So I'm team, I always say that I'm team buy and hold. I quite like the term team buy and hold. So my tip on this is to focus on buying quality assets. And I think that's great advice regardless of the framework we're putting this within. But ideally focus on quality assets, assets that you're happy to keep for the long term. Because I think this advice stacks up even if you ultimately do end up selling, because you've got something quality to sell. So that's going to be my my next one. Um, Lorraine, I think we've probably got time for one more. Have you got one you could finish us off with in terms of places where people have lost money or routinely lose money um, in property? Yeah, definitely. Um, okay, so I'm going to talk about how... I'm going to probably open a bit of a can of worms here and talk about taking out a bridge loan, bridging that dirty word without a robust exit strategy or an inaccurate <laughs> done up value. I think what we find is that um, bridging is often a, a really easy way to get hold of property. Uh, you don't always have to do all the due diligence that you need to. Uh, if you've ever been through a full on mortgage with quite, with quite um, a large property, then you, you find there's months and months of due diligence going on, particularly by the mortgage company. And pieces of paper that you have to provide. Bridging can be really quick to get in and out of. Um, and it's often a short-term gap, really. It kind of helps you get from what I would call an unmortgageable prop property, if I can say it. Um, and often if you're undergoing major refurbishment work. So if you're putting a property into a state of being unmortgageable, then you'll need um, a bridging finance. Oh, and I think the thing with bridging finance is that if you've got no kitchen, you've got no bathroom, um, you've got no roof or no ceilings or you know anything like that where somebody can't live and there isn't somebody in the property that it can either go out and earn an income and pay pay the rent or the mortgage or, or you can't live in it. Um, so your earning capacity is, is affected by not having somewhere to live in that particular property. It, it does require you to, um, to go into bridging. So bridging is reliant on you paying the interest up front um, and then paying back the borrowed money at a later stage. Now, for people that aren't aware of that, then, um, you know, it can often, they often think, well, I'll just find a solution six to 12 months down the line. Now, there are products called bridge to terms, which will often value the end product for you. Um, and I quite like some of the products. I know some people don't because they often feel they get penalised on the end valuation. But the bridge to term does give you that safety net of you have a plan um, once you've done the work that you do have a kind of an exit plan already built in. So it can be quite a nice product to use. But the reason I'm picking this choice is that um, some people will go into a, a bridging product um, and they're going to do the property up. Things always happen, don't they, in refurbs? You know, you always find um, something that you hadn't thought of. And we always... I think it's um, Ray Dalio in his book Principles talks about the principle of um, costs going up, things not going to plan. Um, it always takes longer than you think. You know, all the variables go the other way as as apart from the way you planned. And we don't plan for things to go wrong. And, and that's often what happens in some of these horror stories is that people don't are on short term financing. They don't have a robust plan on how they're going to exit and something's come up. Um, during that process or the builder's gone bust or they haven't been able to fi finish the project or you know there's loads of different reasons that can happen here 
So it's reliant on being able to secure the price you were hoping for so that you, you can um, take all your costs into there. You can then um, get the valuation you want when you go on to a mortgage. Um, so I, I sort of think, you know, you're accruing daily interest. You're sort of out of terms. You do need to um, talk to your broker. You do need to speak to the bridging company and let them know what's going on. Um, don't bury your head in the sand if if this is you, if you have kind of come across this, this situation. But really, it comes to looking at your end valuation and being a bit of a property nerd here and making sure that you've done all the research you can, that you've done your diligence, you've um, done what Sam said in terms of your refurb costs, that you have spent an inordinate amount of time working out what your refurb costs are so that you, you do know what that, that number is and you aren't overestimating your profit or any kind of um, equity that you're creating. And you want the done up value of the property. Um, so really, I'd recommend that you have two or three strong exits for your deal as a backup plan. So um, look at how you can find um, perhaps selling it, perhaps um, buying and holding, perhaps even having um, a joint venture partner or somebody else lined up that potentially is going to come into this project with you. Maybe um, who is... Um, overseeing the project or, or sort of learning with you on the project as you go along. So lots of different tips there um, about how you can um, not lose money in property or actually how you can lose money in property. <laughs> yeah, fantastic stuff, Lorraine. I think this is the whole thing, isn't it? Is that, you know, everybody wants to invest from a position of experience. And one of the best ways to do that, I find, is to look at other people's experience, what's gone well, but also let's not as Lorraine said, bury our head in the sands. Let's look at what's gone wrong for people in the past as well, because I think there's a lot of learning in that. So I really, really like that. Interestingly, as you're talking about things that go wrong in refurbishment projects and how somebody could get stuck on a bridge, um, one of Rick's Facebook reels that I saw, oh, I suppose last week, must have been, maybe the week before, sprung into my mind, which was about, um, he visited one of your properties recently and the neighbour had commenced major building refurbishment works with no party will notice. So yeah. if you haven't got Rick on Facebook or Instagram, I would add him, find the real, because it's actually really quite a shocking video. There's no party will notice. Now, they're working to a resol quick resolution to get the building work moving forward because that's very much how, how their mind is to do so. But you can easily see how you might get into a, a neighbourly dispute over something like that and go, actually, now my project's held up for six months, 12 months, whilst they sort out what's going to be done moving forward. Yeah. And then you're trapped on a bridge. And yeah. you're no longer paying the high interest rate you were paying before. You're now paying the default interest rate, which is even higher. And very quickly, you can see how that spirals. So, I mean, that's certainly a great one to include, because I think where you see absolute disasters, that's not an uncommon place um, to see where people get this wrong. And as you say, it's about, I love this, I think we should maybe make this the theme of today, which is don't bury your head in the sand. I, I think that's a fantastic <laughs> saying. Yeah, definitely. And, and I think this is where the individual in that video, and, and if you if you don't know Rick, it's, it's Rick Gannon. So he's on, um, he's on Facebook, on Instagram, and on TikTok. Um, he, I think he's known as the landlord guy on TikTok. But basically, he, he went to a pro one of our properties and found um, that somebody had basically removed one side of the um, their side, their building, um, but it was kind of propping up the other side of our building. It's kind of a mirror image, if you can picture that. Um, and essentially, we could have put an injunction in to stop work on the site, but we're trying to work with a, a solution that keeps everybody's um, 
um, interest protected, but also keeps the project moving on because it's not in our interest to one have a property sat there without supporting. Um, side to it um you know even if if we if we are in our rights to do that but it, it so it's one of those things really things happen in property don't they and you never know where it's going to take you yeah now if you do want to see the real i've just double checked rick's url so it's facebook.com forward slash official rick gannon that's gannon g-a-n-n-o-n so facebook.com forward slash official rick gannon if you give him a follow you'll see he does loads of reels i don't know how on earth he has time to do anything else he's got so much content he puts out (laughs) but really really interesting video it's all you know from the front end of running a property business this is actually the kind of stuff that we run into so i think it's fantastic um well worth checking out wonderful stuff so we're going to dive into talking about this episode resource so as you probably know from the last episode we're going to try to include a resource for you either somewhere where you get some information or an app or whatever it might be to help you move your property business forward so what i'm going to do is pass it over to lorraine to introduce our resource for this episode okay so today's free resource that we mentioned it's all about planning and it's the planning geek website so planning in terms of property and how you get your planning permission so if you're not familiar with this website it's been created by ian walmsley one of our favorite planning geeks it's probably the largest public online resource of planning outside the planning portal itself and um, planning geek i assume ian is absolutely a planning geek and i know actually he is um, and it's come and it is home to a huge amount of information. But today, I'd specifically like to draw your attention to the section on the site dedicated to permitted development. Now, you can find this by visiting gdpo.co.uk. So that again, gpdd. <laughs> I can't speak. gpdo.co.uk. And on this section of the website, Ian tackles your options under the general permitted development order, hence GPDO. Um, and there's a shortcut to the site being GDPO. So there's an incredible amount of information on the site, but it covers everything from HMO conversions all the way through to casinos. So if you've got a spare casino knocking around, what you can convert it into and everything in between. And it's also worth noting that um, Ian runs a Facebook group by the same name called Planning Geek Community. So if you want to be looking, there's a fantastic community online that offers some insight and support as well. An ideal place if you're looking to buff up on your planning knowledge. So finally, to point out that this, the website and the Facebook group, is they're both free. So a great resource for you. And it's incredible when you consider the amount of time and effort that must go into creating all of that content and maintaining the information. Fantastic, Lorraine. Yeah, I really appreciate it. I I really, really love the Planning Geek website. I use it all the time. And Ian Walmsley, we actually use him to consult on our permitted development projects just to confirm we're doing everything correctly. So I'm a big fan of everything Ian does. So the Planning Geek website is there and it's a wealth of information. So unfortunately, that is a wrap for this episode. It's come to the end of our time together. I hope you've enjoyed it. And remember to like, subscribe, share it with a friend who might be interested. And we will catch you next time when we're driving to when we drive into no let me try that again we will catch you next time when we dive into more property mishaps apparently presenting mishaps tips and ideas until then remember to have some fun